This is a Renegade Media Network podcast. Obviously, you guys know I prefer organizations that flow counter to the mainstream narrative, and I've got the perfect one to tell you about. That would be Texas Scorecard. They were founded back in 2015 by a former Ron Paul Congressional Press Secretary. They are Texas-based, Texas-focused counterculture media organization. How cool is this? They've got podcasts, videos, live programming, a really nice print edition. They've got guest commentaries, very popular daily email newsletter that will highlight the biggest stories of the day. You can actually trust these guys without the mainstream leftist spin put on much of the news we unfortunately see these days. Their mission, disrupt statism and reconstitute self-governance. They do not want a seat at the table They want to get rid of the table. They are pro-citizen. They will be your one-stop shop for Texas politics and news. That is for damn sure. I actually mean that because lately I wanted to know some of the stuff that was going on here. I DM'd Texas Scorecard to find out what was going on. They serve those who are tired of being lied to by the mainstream media. That would be you. That would be me as well. They do not align with any party. They work hard to hold lawmakers on both sides of the aisle accountable. Their reporting was directly responsible for taking down the corrupt Republican Speaker of the House, Dennis Bonin. And check this out. The coolest part of this nonprofit, no paywalls. All of the reporting is always free. You can find them on any social media channel by searching Texas Scorecard. Facebook.com slash Texas Scorecard. Twitter at Texas Scorecard, and then they're on YouTube as well, youtube.com slash Texas Scorecard. You can find their free daily newsletter. Sign up for it over at TexasMinute.com. Go check out Texas Scorecard. You will not be disappointed. You are now listening to the Counterflow Podcast, a place for dissonant voices and unapproved opinions. You get split and fucking half, cause I call the hologram. But I am the center inside the placenta of mass You clash with cyanide gas and die fast Rhythmical equivalent of solids, liquid and gas We smash your science with the power of Lord Titus But I am the virus inside of the iris of Cyrus Here is your host and humble narrator, Buck Johnson Hey, what's up you guys? Welcome back once again to the Counterflow Podcast Glad to have you with us I wonder how some of you guys, you know, sometimes I think How do these people listen to this show? Are you working out? Are you driving to work? Are you leaving work? Are you at work? Just curious. Let me know. Something I've been thinking about. Anyway, let's get to this episode where finally I have James Corbett on the show. James is a person that a lot of you guys over the last couple of years have written to me and asked, will you please get James Corbett on Counterflow? And so, yes, it may be episode 180. It may have taken me that many episodes, but he is here finally And uh, this is a very good discussion. We get into the media narrative, propaganda, conspiracies. How do conspiracies actually work? A lot of us in the libertarian world hate the state, and then we kind of stop at that point. Well, I think over the last 18 months to two years, some of us have had our eyes open, and we realize, wait a second, it's not just the state, is it? There's a lot of powerful players involved in doing a lot of bad things. They're not just stumbling upon like idiotic bureaucrats. There's some actual bad actors involved. A lot of the times we don't know their names. And so we're going to get into all of that stuff. I hope you're already familiar with James Corbett and the Corbett Report. Also, let let me tell you this really quick. He's teaching a class over at Renegade University coming up Mondays, November 1st, 8th, and 15th. And that's all done at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. I like to say 7.30 Central. That's Texas time. That's really the time that counts, isn't it? So there's a link to that class in the show notes page for this episode. And I will be there. I'll be there. Join us online and you'll find out in this episode, if you don't already know, how articulate and uh, just interesting he is. And so he's got a lot to say. So join us in that class and I hope you enjoy this interview. Let me tell you really quickly about the Corbett Report over at CorbettReport.com. Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source. It operates on the principle of open source intelligence and provides podcasts, interviews, articles, and videos about breaking news and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror 
to the Big Brother police state, eugenics, geopolitics, and the central banking fraud, and more, of course. We get into more along with some of those topics as well. Please welcome, finally, he's here, James Corbett. Welcome to the show, sir. Glad to have you here. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me here. Yes, sir. It's your first time on my show, and it seems, at least, that you don't do a ton of outside media as far as stuff other than the Corbett reports, but you do a lot there. Obviously, you've been doing it a long time. So kind of give my audience a good introduction of, of who you are and, and what you do and what you'd like them to know. All right. Well, I guess we'll start at the beginning. I'm Canadian by birth, born and raised in Alberta, Canada. Went to study in Ireland for a year to study some Anglo-Irish literature and then deciding what to do with the rest of my life. I thought I better find a way to basically prolong making that decision for as long as possible. So I decided to go to Asia, teach English in Japan for a year while I figured out what to do with my life. And then uh, one year turned into two, turned into five, turned into 10. Now I'm 17 years into being in Japan. So I think I found what I'm going to do with my life. And that thing is communicating through the internet. I still have to pinch myself. I still can't quite comprehend how I am podcasting for a living, which is something that obviously didn't even exist when I was back in high school, wondering what I was going to do with my life. Well, here I am. I don't know. I still don't quite understand exactly how this happened or how it's going to play out from here. But obviously, <laughs> that has been something that's been very fascinating for me as someone who never, ever, ever, ever wanted to start a website or a podcast, or I never had any inclination along those lines until 2006, living here in Japan, very mundane event. I just moved into a new apartment here that came with an internet connection. It was the first time I'd had an internet connection in my home since I was living with my parents a few years before that. And in that intervening time, the internet, the web was developing and changing. And suddenly there was Google Video, remember that, and YouTube. And of course, all these places were springing up where I could, being a somewhat politically inclined, a news savvy kind of guy, start browsing to my heart's content and looking at news and information and documentaries and finding interesting information along the lines of things that I had never heard before in my classroom education or never heard before in the news media these crazy things about this crazy conspiracies about Operation Northwoods and Edward Bernays and all of this kind of crazy information that once I started looking it up for myself, I thought, oh, wow, this, this isn't crazy. There's actually, wow, I can actually go read the Operation Northwoods documents. Oh, I can actually go and, and read propaganda by Edward Bernays and talk about the hidden power, the hidden ruling force of society, the people who are manipulating our conscious habits and decisions and start finding all this information. And once I started going down that proverbial rabbit hole, there was no going back. So within a, the span of a few months, my world had changed so completely, so pervasively that I went from never having even contemplated starting a website or doing a podcast or anything along those lines to, well, let's start the website. <laughs> I better start get, better getting this information out to others. So I started the uh, Corbett Report website just a few months after that in 2007. And so now it's been 14 years that I've been doing this. I've been doing it full-time for 10. Wow. Wow. That's great. Full-time. What a cool job. A friend of mine that works for the Renegade Media Network named Bobby, he does our ad sales. I texted him and said that I was interviewing you. And what he wrote back, I think, is very pertinent. And I agree with it. And I wanted to get your thoughts. Oh, hell yes. That guy has a lot of integrity in his research. Very little, if any, speculations or bold claims that can't be backed up with documentation. That almost makes his reporting even scarier. Fair assessment? I hope so. Okay. I fervently hope so. Because yes, I definitely want what I say to be backed up. I don't like to make wild claims that I can't back up. And, you know, there's things that I'm interested in or that I, I may suspect, but I'm not going to go out and make some podcast about it until I have some pretty solid evidence or at least from my own. Again, this is the kind of decision everyone has to come up with themselves. What is that line? But at the very least, I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror and say, yeah, I genuinely, truly believe this. And I've done some due diligence to know enough about what I'm talking about to go out and say it. For example, one of the best pieces of criticism that I've ever received was a piece of criticism on my 2014 documentary, Century of Enslavement, A History of the Federal Reserve where I attempted to lay out the history of how the Federal Reserve came to be in the United States and 
what it actually does and how it functions. And one of the pieces of criticism that I received on that uh, documentary was, well, this is just a lot of, you know, information from the Federal Reserve itself. You know, this is a lot <laughs> right. of their own documents and things. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, that's exactly right. It is, this isn't wild, crazy, speculative, trust me, I have some sort of secret inside source that you can't see. No, this is their own documents showing exactly what I'm talking about. And I actually wear that as a, badge of honor. Yeah, no, no, no. I am absolutely trying to find real stuff, tangible things that I can actually point to and underline to show people what is happening. And I think the work speaks for itself. The term conspiracy theorist obviously will be used sometimes in in describing you. Do you mind that or do you kind of shy away from it? And when I say it, I don't mean it in a negative light at all, especially in your case. But what do you think of the term? Well, I've talked about it, obviously, in the past. For example, episode 50 of my podcast, The Other C Word, talking about conspiracy theory and where where did this term come from? How has it been weaponized? Because, of course, there are two senses of this term. One is completely descriptive, just a simple description of a theory or a theorist who is theorizing about conspiracy, a criminal conspiracy that is taking place. That is just a descriptive term. But, of course, it is never, almost never employed in that way. It's always employed as a pejorative. Look at that conspiracy theorist, which is just another way of saying crazy madman. Don't listen to him. And so obviously there's the double sense. If you are referring to the descriptive sense, then yes, I am often theorizing about conspiracies. (laughs) But if you mean it in a pejorative sense, obviously I would take a bit of umbrage at it. But in the end, actually, in fact, last year, I did a video called I Am a Conspiracy Theorist, I believe was the title of the video, where I said, it's kind of interesting how much they get people to twist themselves into knots, trying to do anything, you know, avoid the lava, the floor is the lava kind of thing, jumping all over the place to try to avoid being called a conspiracy theorist. And I think We contort ourselves and try so hard to avoid that label. Oh, my God, don't throw that label at me. Actually gives it the kind of power that these people want it to have. People who would like to make any criticism of people with power or influence or money. Oh, my God, you're a conspiracy theorist. Isn't that a wonderful way to eliminate such criticism? Not if we own the term. Okay, I'm a conspiracy theorist. Now, let's talk about some theories. And here's my facts and evidence and and information. What's yours? I think that's one way to open up that kind of conversation rather than to close it down. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you see people in the quote-unquote conspiracy theory world, other content producers that make you cringe or that are putting forth information in a way that you find not correct and, and you think, well, when this person gets out and people hear them, they're going to lump me in with this person. Do you see common errors in the way people in the conspiracy theory world present information? Of course. In fact, I don't know if there's any person in the independent media that I 100% agree with in all of their assessments all of the time. Of course not. And there are absolutely things out there that I think are outlandish and unsupported by the evidence and I certainly wouldn't be saying myself, and I'm sure people will lump me in because I'm a conspiracy theorist, just like that person who believes that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that is what it is, and that reflects on the person who's making those kind of categorical judgments rather than on me and what I actually say. I'm perfectly willing and able to take responsibility for the things that I say. If other people want to lump me in arbitrarily with people who I'm not associated with, well, that's that's on them. And I don't, A, I don't presume to stand in judgment of truth and reality. I'm not the arbiter of what exists. I have faith in the rationality of my audience. You will be able to come to your own conclusions based on your own evidence. And I know that there is more more in the heavens than are accounted for in your philosophy or however that quote Mm -hmm. goes. Absolutely. I mean, I've had that experience of having encountered that information back in 2006 that completely upended everything I thought I knew about the world. So I maintain the epistemological humility to know I do not know everything. And someone out there, I'm sure, I mean, everyone in the audience knows certain things that I don't, and they'll be able to bring their own things to it and make their own judgments. I'm here making my own judgments based on my own evidence, observation, reason, etc., intuition even, on a number of different levels. And that's the way that it goes. But secondarily, I also want to say that I don't spend my time focusing on what other people are saying. I think Mm -hmm. that that is 
absolutely a complete waste of my time and energy and focus. And I have done it in the past. For example, I did a uh, episode about uh, meet Noam Chomsky, intellectual academic gatekeeper, something along those lines, several years ago, which I note is still a touchstone episode that despite being several years old now, I still get people talking about it and bringing it up to me. It clearly touched a chord with a number of people. But actually, I'm not sure today if I would even bother to do such an episode. Okay, yes, I certainly think that Chomsky knows certain things about certain things, and he's not saying them. And, you know, I demonstrated it all in that video. But the point of doing that, I suppose, is valuable in the case where you have a Chomsky acolyte who you would like to introduced to certain other pieces of evidence or whatever, but that's on the one-on-one conversation level. For me, as someone who I have my own platform to say whatever I want, I'm not going to spend my time chastising this person for not saying this or that person doesn't believe that. No, no, no. What do I believe and what do I want to put forward is the most important thing. And I think the way to set the ground level for a conversation that I want to have, rather than focusing on the conversation other people aren't having for me. Yes. I want to talk about the structures of power and cover-ups that happen because I, your analysis on this stuff is very good and, and it's unique. Unfortunately, it's unique. You know, I wish it was more widespread, but libertarians will often say it's just the state doing all of this thing. And then there's the argument within that category, well, is the state, are they stupid or are they evil? What's going on? Are some of them bad, some of them dumb? And then you used to have lefties blaming corporations. Now, I, <laughs> that's kind of gone by the wayside as they seem to love big pharma, at least. And then there's always the straw men argument that they'll say, well, you guys just say 9-11 happened in some dark room with cigarette smoke and like 10 evil people pulling the puppet strings. Talk about the actual structures of power and how some of these things really work, because there's a lot of implicit incentives in the way things are set up that you don't necessarily need two people pulling all of the strings of the world. So can you talk about that? Well, I have noticed that the people who are the loudest beating their own chest about how they're going to shred the three by five card of allowable opinion are the exact people who will not in a million years go towards challenging the heart, the structural heart of the way power actually operates in society. And the fact that it isn't just a bunch of dumb, bumbling, oh, look, uh, what are we doing? I don't know. I hope someone will show me some sort of chart about mask usage or something so that (laughs) we'll set it straight. That that will solve everything. (laughs) I think that's childish, a childish view of reality, and it completely neglects what is really happening in the real world. And unfortunately, what is really happening in the real world is messy. And it is, I mean, it isn't straightforward. I would love to be able to give the narrative that is the the sort of stereotypical conspiracy narrative, that it is just, you know, the boardroom with the 12-person table, the 13th seat being empty, so Satan considered it, I guess. And then, you know, these fat cat cigar-smoking billionaires are just sitting there deciding precisely what's going to happen with the world. I don't think that it functions that way. Although there are meetings of that variety that I think are of interest. I mean, one obvious example that has been exposed over the past decade because of the work of people in the alt media is the Bilderberg Group, which used to be something that literally, if you even brought it up, you were insane. Like, you're crazy. You think there's a Bilderberg group and they're meeting in secret and trying to decide things about the world. Oh, you crazed lunatic. How dare you even suggest that that exists? Well, over the course of the past decade, we've seen a dramatic shift on that from literally two or three references that you could find in the mainstream media over the preceding 50 years to the annual event of some of the richest and most powerful people in the world meeting in a major uh, capital, either in Europe or North America, for the past 50 years. Occasionally, you'd see a reference here and there in the media. BBC even did a a radio 30-minute or so um, documentary about it several years ago. But it wasn't until the past decade that they finally started admitting, oh yeah, okay, this this meeting is happening and these people are there. But don't worry, it's just a talking shop. It's nothing mm-hmm. to worry about. It's just whatever, Bill Gates and Henry Kissinger and you know the queen of uh, the Netherlands and whoever else. Uh, it's just these kind of people meeting together, just 
talk and shop for a few days. Well, don't worry your pretty little heads about it. So uh, there are meetings of that variety that I think are important, but I don't think that it's a simple, straightforward, top-down narrative of these are, this is the group of people that controls everything. I think there are power centers that are identifiable where there's clearly ability to wield power beyond what is what is given to the public as our conception, our paradigm for the way governance functions. We, we elect some representative every four years that then goes to Congress and yeah, there's some lobbying and stuff and whatever goes on and then they pass bills and that's the way power functions in society, completely neglecting the history. For example, if you want a specific example, I hope I laid it out quite well in my How Big Oil Conquered the World documentary, how, for example, the Rockefeller family in the United States through the standard oil monopoly that they created in the 19th century, leveraged that monetary and resource wealth into political power, not by getting involved in politics, Nelson Rockefeller excluded, but precisely by not getting involved in politics, by instead becoming a philanthropic organization, the Rockefeller Foundation, spreading love and happiness throughout the world, and oh yeah, eugenics and and other such uh, elitist philosophies, which they are now, by the way, I see they are now apparently apologizing for. Sorry about that whole eugenics thing funded <laughs> back in the day, but we don't do that anymore, guys. Yeah, and uh, then and then of course, how does that apply to our current situation today? Not only is of course the Rockefeller Foundation still extremely influential and in funding a number of activities in a number of different fields throughout the globe, but the Rockefeller Foundation was admittedly as Bill Gates Sr. wrote about in his autobiography, the Rockefeller Foundation was the template that the Gates family used for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm. And they said, everywhere we went in the field of public health, the Rockefeller Foundation had been there first. So we looked to the Rockefellers as the example of what we could do and how we could accomplish it. And we have certainly seen, as I laid out in my Bill Gates documentary last year, how the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation has essentially monopolized the field of public global public health. The World Health Organization's second largest contributor is not a nation, it is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So the average person on the street thinks of power as being their congressman or something along those lines. But over the certainly over the course of the past two years, we have seen, no, no, there are directives coming from the World Health Organization and international bodies like this that seem to have a lot more weight than the average person would have thought in the past. And who is pulling their strings? And how yes. does that work? Again, I don't think it's it comes down to a single identifiable group of individuals, but I think there certainly are organizations that do have the ability to wield international agendas. And you don't have to take my word for that. You can take the word of someone who is intimately involved with that. For example, David Rothkopf, who yes. was Henry Kissinger's mini-me. He ran Kissinger's, uh, Kissinger and Associates. He... Uh, I know he was writing for foreignpolicy.com. I'm not sure what he's doing these days, hopefully retiring. But he came out about a decade and a half ago with a book called Superclass, which I talk about often. I don't necessarily recommend as a wonderful read or anything of that sort, but it is at least an admission in the words of one of the conspirators that there is a conspiracy. He just calls it a superclass. 6,000 or so individuals who are beyond and above any polit national political office who are able to wield power and influence agendas transnationally. This superclass can do things that average politicians can't. Well, excuse me, what? I thought, you know, we represented, we, we pulled a lever once every four years, and that was the sum total of power in our society. Of course, it doesn't function like that, but that is the narrative that's given to the, uh, the plebs, essentially, um, because there is an elitist philosophy, which I often go back to, I talk about at great length, the ideology of eugenics, in which the ruling class genuinely believes that they are the ruling class because they are genetically fit. They are genetically built to be the ruling class. And we, us lowly plebs scrabbling to eke out some sort of existence from the economy that they give to us, are genetically poor enough that, uh, you know, you're in the position you are because you're just not up to our standards, our wonderful standards. I mean, look at the David Rockefellers and Henry Kissingers of the world. They're, they're sheer, they're obviously supermen compared to right, us, right? right. So yes. um, it continues to go back to that philosophy, which I, I think gets to the heart of it. I don't think that eugenics 
even the pseudoscience of eugenics is necessarily important in its particulars, but I think it reflects the sort of the ruling class mentality, which has always been there. It's just Mm -hmm. in different eras, it takes on different forms. And hundreds of years ago, it was the divine right to rule. Oh, we rule over you because God has appointed our family to rule over you. That doesn't quite fly in our modern enlightened scientific era. So they came up with a modern enlightened scientific justification for the exact same thing. Oh, well, it isn't God that's appointed us to rule over you. It's genetics. Our genes make us better than you. And I think once we start to wrap our mind around the ideology of eugenics and the pathology of psychopathy, we start to get an understanding of the types of people who are in the real positions of power, not the political positions that are essentially the shadows on Plato's cave wall. Yes. And, and, there's quotes about some of them saying, you know, well, someone says, why don't you run for office? Well, because that would be a demotion, essentially. So I want people, my listeners, to to hear these things and, and at least let it stir your mind a bit. There's people, you know, it's not Joe Biden. I realize he's the face and the boomers love to say he's bringing in his socialism and whatnot. But there's a lot of people behind the scenes with, that we a lot of us won't even ever know their names that have much more power and control than Joe Biden. Yes, I tend to concur with that statement. I think if you know their name, they're probably a super gopher. Uh They're probably in the super class, but I don't think that the people who are truly in positions of power are household names. We'll put it that way. What's up, Counterflow audience? If you're listening to this show, obviously you're a person who cares about their liberty. You may even be one of these people that's kind of tired of waiting around for political change, tired of being upset by the same old, same old from the LP tired of all of this nonsense while you think, what should I really be doing? If you're ready to take matters into your own hands, then I want to tell you about a new community called the Nomad Network. The Nomad Network is the number one community for liberty-minded people just like you and me who want to create freedom in their lifetime by focusing on the things that you can actually change, entrepreneurship, investment, and income mobility. The people over at the Nomad Network, Jason Stapleton, these guys are preaching how to actually make your life more free and better without having to join a political party and go through the same old motions year after year. Whether you have an existing business, looking to start one, or simply want to network with other like-minded people, the Nomad Network is the place for you. The best part is, obviously, everyone likes this, it's free to join. You hear me? Free to join. Go to www.nomadnetwork.app slash buck right now to see what everyone is talking about. That is www.nomadnetwork.app slash buck to get your free account today. See you there. Do you think political ideology keeps a lot of people from understanding how these structures of power work? And let me follow it with this. Do you think political ideology can do more harm than good to normal people? I think it only does harm. I don't think that there is good that comes out of political dividing of the population. It is the old divide and conquer imperial strategy that's been around for thousands of years. In the current form, it takes on, it is a refined form of social constraint. Um, It's, I liken it to the matrix where this isn't the first time that, you know, this isn't the first iteration of the matrix. The first iteration of the matrix was one where everyone got everything they wanted all the time and people would pull themselves out of the matrix because it was too unbelievable. And I don't like this. No, it gets every iteration. Every time they reboot the matrix, it gets a little bit more nuanced and there's, there's more, more, more challenges and there's more depth to it so that people will actually be drawn into the matrix. And I see that in the political um, field as well. I mean, Back in the day, it wasn't difficult to identify the ruling power of society. They're living on the hill in mm-hmm. their castle, and they're surrounded by moat, and they've got knights, and you know they command, and we're working for them, and we have to give them a, a quarter of our crop every year or whatever it is. You know, it's pretty straightforward who's who's ruling in that society. In this day and age, it's much more refined. And well, okay, yeah, we we have to give taxes. I mean, our, our taxes are for the good of society. And anyway, there's a social contract that we didn't sign that says we have to do this. We're, we're doing it. We are the government. 
and we elect our representatives. It's a very it's a very persuasive system on a lot of levels, but of course it engineers into the population, as I say, that divide and conquer strategy. And in the American political context, as, as I say, I'm Canadian, but it, so looking from from afar into the American political situation, it's it's ridiculous that there are two parties and only two parties, and you have the choice of Pepsi or Coke. And look, choice. You know, mm. this is the choice you have. You can have Pepsi or you can have Coke. What do you want? And if you have Pepsi, then you must go along with everything that Mr. Pepsi, the CEO of Pepsi, is telling you to believe. And you have to defend it viscerally with your very identity on the line. And if, uh, you know, Mr. Coke says something that you don't like, ah, no, ah, I hate you. <laughs> and unfortunately, again, it's very, very effective. Curtis Yarvin uses the term cathedral basically to explain the power that the universities and the media combined have over everyone, including the politicians. And in fact, he calls it a press-controlled state. I wanted to ask you about that thought and who's got more power in the United States, the New York Times or the president? Yeah, I would say that's a false dilemma. I don't think either of them singularly wield power. Um, but certainly the combined effect of their power is important. There are times in which clearly the New York Times opinion, opinion page, is yeah. more powerful in a sense than the, the presidential pulpit. But I suppose we could point to times where the reverse is the case. Um, there is an interplay of power that takes place there because I think they are both forms of shadows that are being cast on the cave wall. The question is, who is casting those shadows? Mm. And again, in the, in the case of the corporate owned mainstream dinosaur press, it's pretty easy, I think, to at least start to put your finger on it. I mean, you could start with the Ox Sulzberger family as the publishing dynasty that has uh, been in control of the New York Times for over a century, um, passing from uh, one generation to the next in an unbroken chain that goes all the way back to, uh, what was it, Arthur Ox Sulzberger? Alfred Ox, uh, Adolf Ox, there we go. I knew I'd get it eventually. So you could start there, but you could also look at the uh, the board of various media entities. And of course, media entities are increasingly being bought out. So of course, you know, NBC is an NBC. You've got to look at General Electric, et cetera. So you have to look at the, the corporate ownership in order to start to understand where the real power of the media is actually coming from. Because of course, again, we think of the media, we might think of an individual reporter, we might right. even think of an entity or an outlet like the New York Times, but that isn't really where the New York Times is getting its power from. It's getting it from its corporate owners and its corporate board and the people behind it. So I think we have to start seeing, again, beyond the what is presented to us as the yes. public-facing part of what is actually this vast corporate structure. And I think in the same way government, we look at the president, as if there's this man in this office who runs the country. And that's it. You know, that's the man. And, and whatever Biden says is clearly coming out of the mind of Biden and through his mouth. And it's his own words, right? Right. <laughs> Biden right. is setting this agenda. It hasn't, I mean, everyone at this point knows it has nothing to do with Biden. This is a, a geriatric Alzheimer's patient who's being wheeled <laughs> out and reading from a teleprompter. This is not the man who is running the country. And everyone knows that consciously when they yeah. stop to think about it. But then they go on and continue to just talk about Biden and we got to get Biden. Out of. And it's insanity. It is truly insanity. But it's an engineered insanity. And as I say, it's a it's a maybe sixth or seventh generation iteration of the matrix that's particularly um, encapsulating. And it really gets people ensconced in this system that they know consciously to be fake, but they'll continue to play along with it as if it were real. You have been doing work on medical tyranny long before the stuff we're experiencing right now. As things in early 2020 started to happen and kind of unfold, were you shocked? What were your thoughts as this was happening? Maybe let's say February 2020. Yeah, very good question. Because you're exactly right. I did a uh, podcast episode on medical martial law in 2008, talking about at that time, all of the steps that had already been taking place, for example, in the United States, um, legislatively, to set the groundwork for exactly what we've been seeing over the past couple of years, talking about forced qu uh, quarantines and vaccinations and all these types of things. The legislation has been 
being laid into place quite methodically for at least two decades now since, of course, the anthrax scare, which I have talked about in the past. If people are interested, go to just type, type anthrax into my search bar and you'll find a lot of reports I filed on that and what that was really about. But um, so absolutely, I've known about this and I have furthermore followed it in various, I think, trial runs of what mm -hmm. we've seen over the past two years that have taken place. Most notably, I think the swine flu scare of 2009. Do you remember that? A lot of people don't because in retrospect, it was nothing. In fact, in retrospect, they found that it was actually a less lethal flu season than average. But that was an international pandemic declared so by the WHO on the basis of a definition of pandemic that they changed just a few months before they declared that pandemic. Previously, that definition on the WHO page itself had included the term of, uh, of mass casualties or mass deaths, something along those lines. It was changed to remove that so that you did not need mass deaths in order to declare a pandemic. Mm. And then they declared a pandemic for the swine flu emergency of 2009. The follow-up to that was things like the Council of Europe um, coming along um, to investigate that and finding that the people on the WHO advisory board that had advised the WHO to declare that pandemic just happened to be also sitting on the board of various big pharma manufacturers whose hmm. uh, contracts with various governments mandated that in the declaration of an international pandemic emergency, you would have to start buying uh, uh, Tamiflu and others, uh, other such drugs from these big pharma manufacturers. And the Council of Europe was saying, look, this is a big problem, guys. This is, this is a big scam. But hardly anyone followed that. I was following it at the time. And so I remember that whole story and the way it played out and I was covering it as it happened. So I had seen that happen. And then I saw Ebola. Remember Ebola 2014? It's coming to get you, man. Two, uh, 2016, it was Zika. Remember the Zika virus? Oh my God, the world freaking out about that um, because they were told to by the media. So I think my mistake in certainly January, maybe early February of 2020 was seeing that and seeing, oh, here we go again. And I'm, you know, yeah. it'll be some something like that. Maybe it'll be like a swine flu kind of thing where they say, oh my God, uh, and then it just kind of peters out and goes away and then they sweep it under the rug because I've seen them do that again yeah. and again and again over the past, the preceding decade. So I thought that was another iteration of that. I, I said as much at the time, I think I covered it on New World Next Week in January of 2020, where I said something along those lines, you know, here we go again, it's another fake thing that they're going to gin up in order to accrue more power and probably get some more contracts for big pharma. At the point where they they canceled the NBA season. yes. That was the point. I'm like, oh, I think they're going all the way with this one. And that, so that, that was the point at which I had to change my thinking and start to think, okay, so how far are they going to go with this? Is this, is this the next big thing? And obviously it did turn into the next big thing. In fact, at first people were, were asking, is this the next 9-11? I think it's far exceeded 9-11 in terms yes. of its international impact, obviously yes. at this point. So um, that was the, that was my lack of understanding at the time that they were really pulling the trigger. But having said that, once I changed modes, changed my, my understanding of it, okay, they're going for it this time. The only thing that has surprised me over the past two years is how quickly and how completely the public bought on yes. to this scamdemic. That truly, to this day, that still amazes me to some extent and actually speaks to the incredible power of the propaganda engine that is in the control of the would-be controllers of humanity, the social engineers who obviously have media control. And that, uh, that takes on a different meaning in the 21st century than it did in the 20th century. In the 20th century, in the dinosaur media paradigm, obviously media control meant newspapers, television, radio. And if you had control of that, as by the end of the 20th century, obviously, famously, there were five or six corporations, depending on how you counted it, that controlled 90 plus percent of what the average American heard or saw or read on a daily basis. That's it. So I see 9-11 as an event that took place at the very zenith of that dinosaur media paradigm, where, yeah, there was a World Wide Web, but no one got their news from it. It was, certainly was nothing like what we have today. And everyone was glued to their TV screens mostly um, for that event. In the 21st century, people are on social media. And so that's obviously where we are seeing all of the, the, the attention being played out right now. 
For example, World Health Organization um, head um, Tedros uh, Gabrasis came out in at the Munich Security Conference in February of 2020, just as the scandemic was getting kicked off into high gear, saying, you know what the real problem here is? The infodemic. Because now we've got mm. people who are spreading misinformation online. What are we going to do about it? Clearly, I think we've seen over the past couple of years exactly what they were have been planning to do about it for some time. We've seen the previous iterations of this and the test runs of the deplatforming of people like Alex Jones and whatever. Whatever you think about people like that, clearly those were the test runs yes. for the widespread censorship that they're bringing out right now, precisely to essentially reassert their consolidation of control over the media space that they enjoyed just a couple of decades ago. I think the flowering of things like the corporate report was just completely anathema to that paradigm of, of information control. Again, regardless of what you think about me, and maybe I'm totally out to lunch, I'm a Fruit Loop, Looney Tune, whatever. <laughs> well, at the very least, I could, as truly, people might not believe me, but it's truly true. I was a no one teacher, English teacher here in Japan, literally sitting in my living room in Japan with a beat up old laptop and a $20 microphone, started podcasting to the world, have so far reached millions and millions and millions of people. That is truly revolutionary. Yes. And that is exactly what they do not want to um, to continue, essentially. So I think that's what, what explains the incredible crackdown we're seeing on information right now. Is the toothpaste out of the tube, though? I mean, it, it seems to me like they can try to kick you off YouTube or you off these different platforms, but it's just kind of like whack-a-mole. There's so many options these days. Is it too late for them to actually gain back control over media? You know, I, that's a wonderful question and one that I will be addressing in my Renegade University right. course that I have coming up just in a couple of weeks here, where I'm going to be talking about the history of mass media, but it should probably be called the history and future of mass media, because obviously that is the question that's hanging over us right now. Is the toothpaste out of the tube? Can we continue this revolution or is it destined to fail? And if so, how does that, what does that look like and how does it take place? My, my overall point, I, I think... My tendency is to believe there will always be room for mavericks and pirates and whatever people sort of on the fringes um, to operate. And I think that room, to some extent, if you want to believe the total overarching conspiracy where, you know, the conspirators control everything, well, at the very least, they leave that room on the outskirts and the fringes to very clearly indicate to the people who want to not be on the outskirts, you know, those are the crazy people on the outside. Don't be like them. You want to be here with us in the middle, right? And also to allow um, various uh, deep state actors to exist on those margins to get away with certain things. Um, it's one thing that whenever I talk about the cashless society, the, in, the inevitably people say, well, what about drug running? I mean, we know the CIA does a lot of drug running and stuff. They're not going to be able to do that in the cashless society. Oh, they will, because there will be some crypto or something on yeah. the outskirts that will be allowed to function to some extent where you know the deep state will be um, running its operations. And similarly in the information space, I think there will always be something. But the question is, will that be the major way that people communicate, or will they go along to get along in the con controlled corporate paradigm? That is a decision, and it's not one that is set in stone. It's not written in the stars. We are making that decision right now, and we are making that decision by making the conscious decision to, say, upload this video to YouTube, or to spend the time and make the effort to cultivate an audience on a different platform. That's, the, I think, the first step, the first mental hurdle toward actually accomplishing something in this space is to make the conscious decision, okay, I'll continue uploading to YouTube, but I'll also upload to this other platform so that people will have an alternative. And then I'll start promoting the other platform. And then I should probably put in some time and effort and energy to understand what the different platforms are and how they operate. Is this, is this other platform over here actually structurally different to YouTube? Or is it just another centralized controlled place that for now is more or less allowing free speech, but in the future could crack down? And if, if it is like that, well, then what is an actual structural solution to this? Are there things that will actually allow for peer-to-peer -peer communication without 
a middleman or a, a centralized server. Oh, there is, there's there's IPFS or these, there's these other ideas that are coming online. Well, let's look into that. That is the process that could lead us toward what I think would be the actual solution to this. And I do think that we, we have the template of the World Wide Web itself, um, which people will maybe remember if they're old enough at this point, back in the 1990s when it was brand new and it was, you know, it was the crazy weird space for those computer geek nerds, like what are they, whatever, who cares what they're doing? But it was a genuinely fun environment where all sorts, I mean, there was no standardization and templatization of everything. You didn't have everything looking like some corporate whitewashed massive garbage like a Facebook post feed or something. No, it was it was a weird place where you'd find all sorts of niche homepages that were yes. created by individual people with all sorts of flashy things and nonsense. And it was crazy and wonderful. And I think that's what drew people, ultimately started to draw people into the World Wide Web. And maybe it's called the web for a reason. But mm. it was that that freedom and that spontaneity and the weirdness and the, the, that factor drew people into it. And then once they got people there, then the, the bars of the prison started to come down with the standardization of the social media corporate giants. And now everyone has to go to Google and everyone has to have a Facebook account and everyone has to post their, their feelings on Twitter and everybody has to post their pictures on Instagram. And these are the bars of your prison prisoner. Mm. Do not ever look the other way. I think if we could recapture that sense of genuine fun and freedom that existed on that early World Wide Web in the new space, the IPFS space, or whatever it ends up being, that could be the draw that will ultimately always keep people going to that space. We can show them a greener pasture. But, <laughs> and you knew there was a but coming, right? Then you start to get into the deeper question about media. And do we, or does anyone control media or does media control us? Mm. And that is the deeper structural question that I'm also going to be addressing in my course uh, with recourse to, of course, the one of the most important philosophers, but probably one of the most neglected of the 20th century, Marshall McLuhan, fellow Canadian. He really did write some really fascinating and incredibly important stuff on this. And I would just like to read from the introduction to uh, understanding media because I think he nails it here. He says, after 3,000 years of explosion by means of fragmentary and mechanical technologies, the Western world is imploding. During the mechanical ages, we had extended our bodies in space. Today, after more than a century of electric technology, we have extended our central nervous system itself in a global embrace, abolishing both space and time as far as our planet is concerned. Keep in mind, he was writing this in 1964. Mm. Rapidly, we approach the final phase of the extensions of man, the technological simulation of consciousness, when the creative process of knowing will be collectively and corporately extended to the whole of human society, much as we have already extended our senses and our nerves by the various media. Whether the extension of consciousness so long sought by advertisers for specific products will be a good thing is a question that admits of a wide solution. And I think he, that's an understatement. Uh, his writing is so dense. There's so much going on in there. I couldn't recommend it strongly enough, but that gives you a sense of the idea that, yes, these electronic media technology are not just passive tools mm. that we are, oh, okay, now we're going to use this tool to do what we always do, which is just communicate. No, the media operates on us and structures society around it. And you really get that sense when you start looking at the history of the development of media from, say, the Gutenberg printing press through the telegraphs towards the, the, the news agencies, the newspapers, and then the development of radio, and then television, and now online. And the way that society structures itself around these new form of media really is telling. And I think the real question of whether we will ultimately have freedom in the future or whether we will live in a completely controlled paradigm might rest on the next iteration of this uh, media revolution. And lo and behold, what is all over the news being pimped as much as possible right now in that regards, the metaverse. 
What's the metaverse? It's the new Facebook concoction for virtual reality. Oh, yeah. And it is being pimped everywhere right now in all sorts of bizarre articles that are telling us how wonderful it's going to be when we can have classrooms of children learning in the Colosseum in Rome from some virtual teacher, and it'll be better than real life and all of this nonsense that clearly is corporate PR that's taking place right now but that I think does gesture towards a real revolution that is taking place and that could take place towards not just us being separated from our electric technological communications technology, but actually being incorporated mm. into it, li literally putting ourselves into the media space and then structuring our society around those virtual spaces. Unfortunately, I think once we get to that point, once we start to abrogate our fundamental humanity mm -hmm. and start to really literally merge with this technology, all bets are off the table. Um, so I hope at the very least I can put a little bit of understanding about that, that, that development and where that's going and why we might at the very least want to enter into this new age consciously rather than sort of stumble into it. But at any rate, I think we need to start having that conversation now like right now, before it gets uh, too late. Yes, and in the intro and outro to this episode, I'm going to tell my audience about that class you will be putting on at Renegade University. I will be there for sure. If you need anything CBD-related, I've got the store for you, palomaverdecbd.com, and I've got a promo code for you, Buck, B-U-C-K, at checkout, get you 25% off of your order. They've got everything you'll need that's CBD-related. They've got tinctures, they've got salve, they've got these soft gels, they've got an amazing sleep bundle. Check that one out. And, you know, I've told you before, the pet stuff, the pet CBD tinctures, the CBD dog chews, my French Bulldog Lux walks like a new man now. A new French Bulldog man, that is. That's because I put it on his food in the morning and in the evening. And now he's got a brother. I've got a new French Bulldog here at the house, George. We've adopted George now. He's four years old. I got to put this stuff now in his food so he ages a little bit more gracefully than Lux did. So I'll be going back for more. If you've got a pet, I'm telling you this stuff works wonders. If you got a sore back or you work out a lot and you get sore, I'm telling you there, I've told you before, the muscle cream works wonders, the sports cream, the sleep pack works wonders, and the promo code works wonders. That's palomaverdecbd.com, promo code BUCK for 25% off of your order. Carlos and Vanessa Avalar of San Antonio that own this business, really great people. They're like-minded. They want to support a show like this that I put out every week for you guys. Give them some business. In turn, it gives me some business. And in turn, I keep cranking out these shows on a weekly basis. PalomaVerdeCBD.com, promo code BUCK for 25% off of your order. Let's get back to the show. I got two questions and I'll get you out of here. And I'm interested also from your perspective, since you live in Japan, if it was different over there than it was here, what did you make of those early videos, the Chinese propaganda, the videos of people falling down in the streets or locked up in their apartments, just, you know, corpses? What did you make of that? Well, uh, for the previous two years to the COVID scandemic, I had been doing a weekly series called Propaganda Watch. So people can look in my archives for that, where week in, week out, I was looking at okay, here's a piece of propaganda from the mainstream media and here's how we'll dissect it and we'll look at it. And in that regard, although I have discontinued that series in favor for, of Solutions Watch, where I'm trying to look at things we can actively do with this information to restructure the world, change our lives for the better. But it might be good to, at the very least, have a one-off uh, Propaganda Watch revisit of that early footage that was coming, coming out of controlled communist China where... No one can put anything online that isn't approved by the government. And suddenly we're getting all these videos of people collapsing on the street and other nonsense, which at the time, hey, what do we know? They're, they're telling us there's something yeah. new and people are collapsing in the street. You know, I don't know. Oh, it's crazy. It looks, it looks terrible. And I know even people in the alt media space were speculating about cytokine storms and all sorts of this is what must be going on. In retrospect, it was completely fake, right? Yeah. I mean, we know now that doesn't that isn't the way that it played out in any other part of the world. So whatever's happening, it's it looks nothing like that. So what were those videos? How did they come about? More importantly, how did they structure our understanding of this deadly pandemic in order to hardwire in all of the 
essentially the Pavlovian conditioning yeah. at this point that is now being enforced by the the people in the, the sort of the lowest level of the propaganda pa uh, pyramid uh, are now enforcing it on each other. And yes. I, I say that because the uh, the Pavlovian bell in this case is the WHO, the CDC, the FDA, the Fauci, whoever coming on your visual screen, your telescreen, and giving you the commands for the day. Now you will not wear a mask. Now you will wear a mask. Now you will wear two masks. Yeah. Now it is time to lock down. Whatever they tell you, you must obey because listen to the experts, follow the science, all of these slogans that have been drilled into our head over the past couple of years. So that was the, the sort of the Pavlovian conditioning that took place for us to get into this place that was predicated on these crazy scenes coming out of China. And now we're at the point where I just, a couple of hours ago, I just saw a video um, that's trending on YouTube from my home and native land of Canada, where it's a funny comedy video um, from some comedy channel, something about like how to how to use your vaccine passport or something like that. And this funny comedy video is essentially um, saying, telling people, if the if the business asks for your vaccine passport, just show it to them, you idiot. What's yeah. your big problem? Uh, you know, if, if they ask you for ID, <laughs> just show it to them. Why are you being a jerk? Why are you hurting other people? Ha ha ha, what funny comedy, right? I mean, it's it's bizarre on the level of comedy, but it's the kind of thing that gets a lot of applause from people who now are socially signaling to each other. I'm a good person. Yes. I not only, I not only got double jabbed, I got triple jabbed, no quadruple jabbed. And I'm willing to show my papers to anyone in authority at any time. Yay. Look at how much I comply. I will lick your boots. I will lick your boots. This is the point where unfortunately the propaganda starts to it's not even coming from top down anymore. Now it's horizontal. And that's yes. the point which we really have to worry about the, the deep structural changes that are taking place in our society right now. And then last one, got to phrase this so I, I don't get kicked. From what you do know in your research, not just on what's going on in the moment, but in past medical tyranny stuff that you've done and covered for years, the potion that's out now being mandated across the world, really, by governments and now, you know, private companies making their employees do it from the three or four various big pharma companies. Do you have any advice from what you do know in your research on this kind of stuff for people listening that are scared and think, what do I do? I'm about to face this decision and I got to make a big decision that's going to affect my future financially or will it affect my future health wise? Just anything with, that you tell people? Well, in the same way that I trust the rationality of my audience for each individual audience member to come to their own decisions about the information that I report, I also trust their judgment about their own personal situation, their own health situation, their own economic situation, to come to their own decisions, given the various factors that are at play here. And it's not an easy decision. If you are not inclined to go along with the agenda and everything that comes with that, if you have any hesitancy, hesitancy, that word, yeah. um, about this at all, it is not going to be an easy decision and they're going to make it as difficult as possible. We are only seeing the, the thin edge of the wedge. The thicker edge is coming and we will start to see much more dramatic things in the future. This, this is precedent setting time. So they want to lead people into the pen gradually and quietly and not kick up too much of a fuss. Don't worry. It's a pandemic scenario. It's emergency. We have to do this. We have to do this. It'll just be for a year, two weeks to flatten the curve, whatever. Just get in the pen and then they can close the gates. And as I assume, I, I shouldn't assume, should I? I would like to encourage those who have not yet done so to look into the ways that these vaccine passports that are coming into view have not only been on the drawing board for some time now through organizations like ID2020. And then you start looking at the corporate partners of ID2020 and you start finding Microsoft and of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all these same partners that are part of all these various different bodies. But anyway, something like an ID2020 that's been talking about this, you need a digital identity. In fact, it's in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They, it's a human right to be able to prove your identity. So we're going to have to find some sort of digital common way of, of doing this so that you'll have the chip on your phone, phone, that's, oh, you can lose it. You could, why don't we just put it right in your skin? Come on. <laughs> we know where this is heading. And we know that this is ultimately not going to be about, you know, how many jabs have you received? Have you received the recommended number of jabs? It is going to be tied to your digital identity. 
and your digital wallet. And lo and behold, now central bank digital currencies are becoming yes. a thing. And, and now we've got, uh, was it Nigeria recently saying, if you're not jabbed, you're not going to be able to bank. Oh, oh, okay. So now we're at the point where you literally can't buy and sell if you're not following all of the uh, the rules that the government arbitrarily sets in whatever self-declared emergency. So we know where this is going, right? Right? I like to think so. Anyway, so yes, huge decisions are coming and a lot will be riding on them. And I am not sitting in judgment of people who are making those sorts of decisions because I know everyone has their own situation and their own family concerns and health concerns and whatever. But for people who are concerned, I am actively looking at things uh, that people can can think about when they when they're coming to those decisions. So, for example, on Solutions Watch, um, just in the past couple of weeks, I've been talking about fighting vaccine mandates, the various sorts of things that people can or could be doing if they are interested in fighting against this papers please kind of tyranny that's coming into view. I've also looked at picnic protests sweeping the world, which is a, a gesture towards not necessarily fighting vaccine mandates, but more towards creating the type of thing that we want. Why is it that we're so invested in, oh, I must eat at that restaurant, but they won't let me in because I'm not jabbed or something along those lines. How about we create our own economy? And the simplest, most obvious example of that is the people sitting out and having their picnics on the street instead of going into the, the restaurant. We can we can have a free economy if we make it, but we have to make that conscious decision. So those are the types of considerations that I'm looking at at Solutions Watch, and I hope people will check it out. And uh, I'm always, of course, interested in exploring more along those lines. But yes, I certainly don't sit in judgment of people who are literally making life and death decisions and decisions about the future of their family and whether they can put food on the table and those sorts of things. Some difficult decisions are going to have to be made in the near future. All right. Well, I've, I've kept you here and this has been an honor really for me to get to interview you. Plug away. We know that YouTube's you know, taking down your stuff. Unfortunately, you had millions of views over the years and they just ruined it. Where can people find all of your work now? CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T report.com is the one-stop shop for all my work. It's all there and it's all downloadable directly from my servers. I host all my MP4 and MP3 files directly on my own servers. So you never have to visit a third-party platform in order to do it. If you, uh, I mean, for ease of streaming and whatever, if you want to, I, of course, am on Minds, I'm on BitChute, I'm on Odyssey, I'm on archive.org. So the links to those things will be in in my various posts on CorbettReport.com. But CorbettReport.com is the best place to go, and it'll probably be the last line of defense. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I think they will start coming for individual sites and uh, declaring uh, domains, uh, domain names. Um, but I'm also prepared for that. There's an IPFS mirror of my site that isn't centrally located anywhere. There's no way to take it down. As long as someone's hosting or seeding it somewhere in the world, it will be up. So people can look at that. That's on the sidebar of my site. It's called the IPFS Backup. At the very least, just take a look at it. Yeah, it's basically just a mirror of my site. Uh, it's usually a week or two old, depending how recently it's been updated. But all the files are there through IPFS and downloadable through IPFS. And uh, at the very least, bookmark it for when and if sites start disappearing from the web. As we step further and further into 1984, who knew it was coming in 2021? James Corbett, man, this has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that chat with the great James Corbett. And I hope to see you guys in the class over at Renegade University. I think that if you're new to James Corbett, after hearing this interview, I suspect you may be interested in hearing him teach on mass media, a history of it. And again, those are sessions are November 1st, 8th, and 15th. Again, you do not have to be there live, although it's fun to do it that way, because if you uh, buy the course at Renegade University, uh, you can always watch it later. And again, there's a link to uh, how to buy it in the show notes page for this episode. Join us, subscribe on the YouTube page. We're getting the numbers up there finally subscribe, if you will, and get those numbers up for me. You can watch this interview, of course, on YouTube. Counterflow with Buck Johnson is the page. You should know that. We got an Odyssey page, too. And we got the Telegram group, which is always fun. Lots of great articles and, and smart people in that Telegram group. The website, counterflowpodcast.com. You know, I've talked to you guys a little bit about this trip. I'm taking down to Mexico, Sayulita, Mexico, where COVID does not exist. It's going to be a great time with Johnny Perfita putting it on from the Peddling Fiction podcast. 
My guy, Mark Clare, is going to be down there with us. Lots of fun, Clint, from Liberty Lockdown. And uh, there's a link to buy tickets to that trip as well, to that event, I should say, in the show notes page for this episode and every episode leading up to that event, which will be December 10th through the 12th. The weekend before that, we're doing the annual Ron Paul event down in Lake Jackson. The Mises Institute puts that on. I will be there. I try to, I think I've been to most of them lately. And what we will do is have an after party. If you're going to Lake Jackson to the Ron Paul event that the Mises Institute is putting on, join us. We have a little lake house down there that we will be renting out. And not to you guys. I mean, we are renting it. But you guys are welcome to come to the after party and hang out with us. We had a great time last year doing that, and I'd like to do it again. So, uh, yeah, hit me up on Twitter, at Buck Rebel, if you're going to that, and I'll give you the details. And uh, let me read one of my newest and bestest reviews yet on iTunes. And again, I told y'all, if you leave me a review, it doesn't have to be nice. I read you a, a bad one the other day, which was fun. But leave me a review, and I'll read them on the air. Go with the counterflow. Been listening to counterflow for about three months now, and I have found this podcast to be one of the most digestible shows for my daily three-hour commute. My goodness. Buck is an outstanding and well-mannered interviewer with a humble bedside manner and a voice primed for NPR, which is rare but refreshing for podcasts in this genre. The exchange between host and guests always feels like a conversation between old friends. I'm happy to have found Counterflow because it's introducing me to vocabulary and reading material that further strengthens my resolve in conversations related to politics, culture, and philosophy. It is a nice tool aiding in my exodus from mainstream media and the political binary. Keep up the outstanding work, Buck Johnson. My present and future self appreciate it greatly. I hope to make it to one of your live events in the near future. That was from K.B. Fallon. What a wonderful review. Thank you, K.B. Fallon. As for this show, I guess we're about done here. Thank you guys so much. I'll see you in that class put on by Renegade University with James Corbett, November 1st, 8th and 15th. Looking forward to it. See you guys soon. Have a good one. You get split in fucking half, cause I call the hologram graph. But I am the center inside the placenta of math. You clash with cyanide gas and die fast. Rhythmical equivalent of solids, liquid and gas. We smash a sinus with the power of Lord Titus. But I am the virus inside of the iris of Cyrus. Like the sound of the Counterflow podcast? Our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. This has been the Counterflow Podcast, a part of the Renegade Media Network.